pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm so excited to open up God's Word with you as we uh, are in these last weeks of our study out of the book of Ephesians. Uh, we have been, since the beginning of the year, uh, looking at this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the uh, church in Ephesus, this group of fledgling believers who had left their life of selfishness and sin and uh, self-reliance. And, and given their life to Jesus, this new way of life, this new pursuit of following their Savior and learning that a life in Christ wasn't simply just a moniker or a label that they put on themselves, but it impacted every area of their life and their existence. To identify themselves as in Christ meant that they were going to think differently. They were going to talk differently. They were going to act differently. They were going to live differently. And Paul writes, first of all, in chapters 1 through 3, what being in Christ is all about. You know, their position, the privileges of what it means, what is at their disposal in this relationship with Christ. All the gifts, all of the goodness, all of the grace that we have in being children of our God in heaven. And the love and the grace and the mercy and all that Christ brought to us in His death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And then in chapters 4 through 6, He moves from now knowing who we are, making sure our foundation is strong and secure, moving us from that foundation to now what is the natural outpouring of that. Now that I know who I am, now that I know where I find my purpose and meeting, where I find real definition for my life, where I find my real identity in life, now I move to my calling. Now I move to where I am to live this life out in the real world. It is putting my faith to feet, if you will, or feet to faith, and, and to live it out in the comings and goings of life. I am to walk in light, not in darkness. I am to live this out with regards to uh, all manner of things. My sexuality, my married life, my, my life with my children, my life with my parents. And now, in our text this morning, we're going to find out what it means to live this out. What it means to be in Christ. To answer the question, who am I with regards to my work? But to be able to do that, we've got to do some deep dive into this passage this morning to understand the context of what was going on in the first century, what's going on in our context today, and it's going to take us some time to do some homework uh, to get to an application that will work for us in our day that we can take to work tomorrow. And so with that, let's read the text, and then let's ask God's blessing on it, and then let's dive right in uh, to it. Here's what Paul says with regards to uh, our life as workers, as well as the life of the Ephesian believers. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. 
masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's stop there and let's pray. Father God, I just thank you again for this time that we've had to worship you. I thank you for our worship team and and their leadership and in selecting of songs and and leading of our time of worship and bringing us to your throne room to remember all that you have done, your mercy and your grace, your goodness to us, to remind us who we are in you. And it now leads us in light of all that we know of what you've done for us. And what you're doing for us now leads us in a life of gratitude. It compels us now to live differently. And when it comes to now our work, Lord, I pray that it would lead us to live differently so that we may honor you. We may glorify you in that time slot that we call work. Wherever we find ourselves, to whom we ever find ourselves working with or for, Um, Lord, I pray that we might honor you and honor them so that they might see not our good deeds, but they might see you living in and through us. And that as a result, Lord, that not only would we be evaluated well, but that you might be exalted. That you might be exalted by our co-workers that you might be exalted by our employers, that you might be exalted by our employees, that, that everyone in our workplace might exalt you a little more because of what they see of you and us. So Lord, teach us today. Teach us about what was going on in the time of the Ephesian believers' lives. Teach us what we can learn from their example and how we might live differently as a result. We do this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, today we talk about work. We've talked about married life. We've talked about life in the family of parents and kids. And now we pivot to work. And work can be something that when you bring up that word and that picture, a dream comes up. You love it. You love work. You love what you're doing. You love whom you work for. You love who you work with. Everything about work is just great. You get up on Monday morning excited and ready to go to work. For others of you, work is a four-letter word. You, You don't like it. You don't like who you work for. You don't like who you work with. You don't like your job. The person you work for is is really, really a lot of trouble for you. What you're being asked to do at times, you may feel demeaned as a result. You may feel that uh, you're above it. You may feel like you're in a dead-end place. And work at times can bring very, very little satisfaction. As a way of understanding, work has been something that's been around since before the dawn of sin. It was there in the Garden of Eden. Adam was given the command to work, to tend and oversee the garden before sin would impact us as a uh, human race. And work will be with us until the end of this age. It is a part of our human experience. And we need to figure out how we work and how we do it well. But as Christians, we need to ask and answer the question, who am I when it comes to my work? 
We need to find our identity, not in our work, but we need to find our identity in whom we work for. And what we're going to learn in this text is that we work and we serve Christ. And we need to recognize that no matter what the org chart says in our workplace, at the top of that org chart, the CEO of all of the businesses that we work for is Jesus Christ. And therefore, because my boss is Jesus, I'm going to do everything I can to serve and honor my CEO to the best of my ability. And as I bless him, my CEO, I'm going to bless all the middle managers and co-workers along the way. And so as I do this, I find my identity of who I am in Christ, work is going to take on a whole different view and a whole different place in my life. Well, let's talk about work for a moment. Work's a big deal in our lives. For many people, work is a satisfying thing. Americans, three quarters of Americans, find uh, great satisfaction in their jobs. Uh, They seem to enjoy it, which was a bit surprising to me. Asked the question, what would make uh, satisfaction even better? Uh, They pivoted to these things. Better uh, compensation, who would have been surprised by that? Better work-life balance, maybe more recognition for the contributions you were bringing, and so on and so forth. And so there are some ways we can get more satisfaction from our job. But notice, we're extremely satisfied overall. Uh, according to uh, this study that was done just uh, a couple months ago, the percentage of employed adults that say they're extremely or very satisfied overall with their jobs, 51% of you are really satisfied with what you're doing and, and where you're at. The relationship you have with your coworkers, 67% of you like working with the people around you. That's encouraging. I was blown away by this. 62% of you are extremely satisfied with your relationship with your pastor. I mean supervisor. That's really great. I mean, that's really surprising. I, I thought that it would be a much lower number than that. But that that's really encouraging. Now, the number drops that we're not extremely satisfied with regards to how much we're paid or the opportunities for promotion. Now, the reason why this is so important is because we spend a lot of our lives at work. In fact, take a look at this. Uh, This is your life. 79 years, that is 28,835 days, is about the average uh, human life. And each of those dots in those jars represent uh, the amount of time you spend doing any one of those activities. So the top one there is the time you spend sleeping in bed, okay? You spend more time sleeping uh, than you do any other activity. The second set of dots is the time you spend at work work. This is where we all should groan right now, okay? That's a lot of time that you're spending at work. And then notice the next things that go underneath it. So the second most used time of any particular activity outside of sleeping is work. Of those 79 years, over 13 years of your life, will be dedicated at work. That's not commuting time. That's not at home time. That is you actually doing your job. Then they add one year and two months of overtime for you as well. So almost 14 years, cumulative years of your life are given to this thing called work. And so... 
Hopefully you're finding some satisfaction. Hopefully you're finding some joy in it. Hopefully you're finding a way, most importantly, as a Christ follower, to find a way to show those people at your workplace, whether your employer or fellow employees or employees, a little bit of Jesus along the way. This is why Paul takes time as he works through these codes of what life as a Christian looks like to make sure he takes a moment to speak to what it is to work. Now, as we look at this text, we need to recognize a couple things. One of the important things as you interpret the Bible is you need to always recognize you are reading other people's mail. Always remember that. So when we pick up this book, this letter of Ephesians, it is no different than us going to the Ephesians mailbox, opening the mailbox and pulling out a letter that says, from the Apostle Paul. We pull that envelope out, we open it, and we start reading it. That's what we've done. And we're reading it. It's a letter from Paul to the Ephesians. We were told that in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. We're not in Ephesus, right? And so we're reading other people's mail, and we are taking it, and what we have to be careful with is we have to always ask the question, how are we to apply this letter that was written to these Ephesian Christians 2,000 years ago, half a globe away, how are we to take those words that were written to the church in Ephesus How are we to apply it? And what we've got to be careful with, as we read their mail, we need to always go to their local, immediate context and understand what was going on there. Because if we read it through our lenses, we get into trouble. Today we get into one of those passages where if we read through our own lens... If we read it through a 21st century lens, if we read it through an American lens, if we read it through our local context, we got all kinds of trouble. And so what we got to do is for the last couple of weeks, I've shown a lot of, uh, and I've gotten a lot of flack from my children about it, a lot of old time sitcoms and shows and all that. So this is my only movie reference. We're getting into DeLorean and we're going back in time. And our first stop in the DeLorean trip, in the back in time trip, is we got to go back in time into American history. Because we are going to look at this text, and right away, in verse 5, we're going to read something, and every American here is going to freak out. And we're going to look at it, and we're going to be like, oh boy, we've got a problem. And it goes like this, slaves, obey your earthly masters. And what we need to do is, point number one, we need to uh, understand and recognize this morning the sinful reality to slavery. Right away. Because we're reading this through a 21st century American lens, and we need to own that, and we need to understand that, but we're reading not an American letter, not a 21st century letter with the history that we have, We're reading a first century Middle Eastern letter written to a group of Christians in a particular context. And we've got to get some of our history figured out before we can come to this letter. So what we need to understand is when they use the phrase slaves and masters, those are pregnant words for us. Those are words that that in essence, they send shivers down our spines. 
They hearken back to the deepest and darkest places of our own American history. Uh, they, as we read these things, we begin to look through an American lens, and it causes us to misunderstand the totality of the context. Was there slavery going on in this letter? The answer is yes. Was the slavery the same that we saw in the days prior to the Civil War? The answer is probably not. So let me explain. Okay? So let me explain. So let's do some history. So let's understand, first of all, before we can get to first century understanding of slavery, let's deal with really what would be slavery prior to the Civil War. Four attributes of that slavery which made that totally depraved, totally heinous and ugly. Number one, it was racially based. It was racially based. American slavery was an unjust system that was based on skin color. You had one skin color that was inferior to another skin color. The Bible speaks of us being of the same race, of the same bloodline. We come from the same parents. We are different shades of the same color. And because we're made in the image and likeness of God, there's no inferiority because we have different shades of the same color. And so right away, we're off the reservation, if you will, with regards to this idea of slavery. We're missing the point. We're missing the gospel in its communication of what's transpiring here. It's an unjust system. Number two, American slavery was a lifelong enslavement. It was a lifelong enslavement. That is, slavery was a lifelong sentence for uh, the vast majority of slaves. Very few slaves ever were made free in American slavery. The vast majority of slaves in American history were never given um, anything uh, but the least amount of human rights. And that's a problem. That's a problem. And if anybody should have understood it, it would have been the Hebrew Christians who would have read this letter because a whole book of the Bible speaks of the a time where uh, the people of the Exodus no doubt understood what lifelong uh, bondage looked like. Now this lifelong bondage came as a result of the third attribute of the slavery of the American history. And that is it was inherited bondage. So this inherited bondage was that children were born into slavery. If your mom and dad was a slave and you were born into that family, you inherited that slavery. And then likewise the grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Hundreds of years of slavery, a legacy of bondage, a legacy of slavery uh, took place. Number four, people were seen as property. Slaves were considered as part of a master's property that could be bequeathed or exchanged uh, like any other commodity, livestock, furniture, you name it. And so with all of these four attributes, these four characteristics, it's no wonder that American slavery was by far some of the most ugly, most heinous, harshest of slavery that, Amer that I'm sorry, that the human history has ever seen. Because it viewed these dear people as less than human. So you could do with them what you wanted. You could treat them however you wanted to. You could have them uh, be a part of anything that you wanted them to. And you could feel totally within your right to do those things. On top of that, which we'll get to in a moment, on top of that, the government turned a blind eye to it. 
the government turned a blind eye to it and said, you can do whatever you want. In fact, you are in many ways constitutionally protected from any kind of recourse from the government. That is until the time of the Civil War. So, this is precisely why our understanding of the American slave experience is altogether depraved, denying the God-given worth of individuals, treating them as possessions to be bought, sold, and owned, is totally antithetical to the gospel, to our understanding of how God has created us in the image and likeness of Him and uh, who He is, and is contrary to everything in the Scriptures. Okay? So, when we read this through American eyes, we're like, how could Paul write this? Why wouldn't he just say revolt slaves? So something's wrong. We're missing something. So, so then I sat there and I said, okay, we, we've, we've got to help, we've got to help the congregation know there's a difference here. There's a distinction here. And so I found all these pastors and there's lots of pastors who write, what Paul's talking about is different than the American experience of slavery. And I'm like, well, but I'm going to have some skeptics here. Uh, Christians, they'll believe it and they'll say, yeah, okay, that's good enough for me. Pastor so-and-so said it. So I'll believe it. So what I did is I did a whole lot of research finding individuals who are not fans of this book, who are not fans of our way of life. And I said, I want them to come to the defense of this argument. And so I found secular historians who are not big fans of Christianity, who, who articulated very clearly what I believe to be a historic understanding of Roman uh, slavery being different than American slavery. And this is what was communicated. Keith Bradley said this, Roman slavery was based not based on race, therefore there was no stigma attached to being a former slave. Many former slaves went on to hold positions of power and influence in Roman society. Mary Beard said this, while American slaves were treated as property and could be bought and sold at will, Roman slaves had more legal protections. For example, a Roman slave could bring a case against their master in court and could even be granted their freedom as a reward for good service. Kyle Harper said, Roman slavery was not based on the concept of racial inferiority as it was in America. Rather, it was seen as a temporary state of affairs with the potential for slaves to earn their freedom through hard work and loyalty to their masters. And then finally, Mary Lefkowitz, she put it this way. She's a history professor from Wellesley College, which isn't known for being big fans of the Bible, okay? They, she put it this way. In contrast to the horrific treatment of slaves in the American South, Roman slaves were often treated with a degree of kindness and compassion. Many Roman households had close relationships between masters and slaves, and it was not uncommon for slaves to be treated as members of the family. Are you seeing what you and I understand and know of American slavery? Are you seeing the distinction that both biblical and secular historians are saying is different and what's going on here? Now the question is, well, what does Paul have to say about slavery? That's a pretty ugly thing because we got to imagine in the Roman Empire there were some pretty bad slave masters. There no doubt in those days some ugly, heinous despicable things happening in the realm of slavery going on. Even though the Roman Empire, by the way, had provisions of protection 
over people who held the spots or the label of slaves. They had legal protections. That's again the difference between what American slave experience was, where there was no recourse for the slave when it came to their government. The Roman Empire gave that to the slaves. But what would the Bible have to say about it? And a lot of biblical critics would say, well, the Bible was okay with slavery. It never said anything about slavery. Jesus never addressed slavery. Well, the same writer of the book of Ephesians later writes the pastor at the church of Ephesus, Timothy. And in writing to Timothy, he talks about the importance of the law. And that the law is there to show wrongdoers, us as sinners, our sin. And it points out how we all miss the mark and how we live contrary to the ways of God. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-11, through 11, Paul says this to Pastor Timothy from the church of Ephesus. He says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane. And he says, the law is there for people who are sinners. That's all of us. Now he gives some examples. For those who strike their fathers and mothers. For murderers. For the sexually immoral. For men who practice homosexuality. Notice the next word. Enslavers. Other translations, slave traders. The idea here is, leave that up on the slide there for a moment. The idea here is... The kind of slavery that the Bible is going to come out against is forced slavery against your will slavery where you are viewed as property slavery. Now I want you to box that in for a moment, okay? Because that's going to be really important because I'm going to give you some examples in the Roman Empire where I think there was, for no other better term, and give me some allowance here for a minute, for what I have for no other better term to say just ways of having slaves. Okay, because there's no other word we use indentured servitude. We call it all different things. For no other better term to just call it slaves. We'll get to it in a moment. What Paul is saying is, you can't own people. You can't trade people. You can't treat people as cargo. You can't treat people as animals. And this is one of the things that says you're a sinner and in need of God's grace. And But here's the thing. He lists it with all the other things. He goes on liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine according with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, now listen. There's been a lot of debate about... You know, what do we do with people, especially Christians who, who own slaves? And we've gotten into this habit of, they did this heinous thing. And is it heinous? The absolute answer is yes, it is. And, and on this side of where I'm living, it's easy to look back and say, how, how could you do that? Or how could you get there? And it's easy to be like, that's deplorable. That's, that's depravity unhinged. But as I read that passage in 1 Timothy, I start noticing that the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lists that sin amongst some of the sins that I myself struggle with. And what I begin to do is I begin to say, how can someone do that? And then I ask the question, well, how can I do the things I do? 
How can we do the things that we do? Aren't those depraved? Aren't those insidious? We say, how can one person own another person? That's totally and utterly depraved and corrupted. And the answer is yes. But how can a man cheat on his wife? How can children be disobedient to parents? How can a neighbor defraud his neighbor? How can we steal from our employers? I mean, we can just go down the list. And God says all of these things, all of these things need amazing grace to them. And all of us are there. We're stuck there. Listen to me. We're all canceled out because of it. God cancels it out. We're children of wrath. And God in His immense glory and grace says, but God, rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. John Newton, the, the slave trader, seeing the depravity of his sin, treating human beings like animals, tending to them with money and, and saying, here, I'll give you this much for this person and this much for this person, came to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And he said this amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. And if that grace can save a slave trader, it's the same grace that can save the adulterer. It's the same grace that can save the liar. It's the same grace that can save the thief. It's the same grace that can save every one of us today. And so we've got to recognize, and I listen, and please hear me. I am not sugarcoating over what has happened. You've heard me say it. What we experienced as a nation was a pox on our house. It's a pox. And yet, what we have here, both from biblical and uh, secular historians, seems to be something different. So what do we have here? So now we get to, now we're, now we're to the first century. We got in the DeLorean again, and we came from America now to Ephesus, and we get here, slaves obey your masters. If it's not what we saw as Americans, what is it then? There are three reasons why an individual might have been a slave in the Ephesian time. Number one, number one, you did it to pay off a debt. You voluntarily became a slave to pay off a debt. Back in the day, there weren't banks that you would go to and say, I want to buy a house for my wife and I. We're going to get married and we want to buy a piece of property. We want to start a farm. We want to start a business. And so we're going to do this and we're going to go to the First National Bank of Ephesus and we're going to get a loan. They didn't have that. So you went to a richer person and you would go to them and you would say, hey, I want to buy a piece of property from you and the way I'm going to pay you off is I'm going to become your slave for a season. And you would contractually put down for this property, I'm going to work until this property is paid off. And there would be a certain level of enslavement. You were their slave. They were your master. Now, we read a proverb that we take out of context. And we, we go through the Dave Ramsey material and we hear it and we're like, oh, that's so great. It works for me. But it creates a greater context and we understand Roman uh, first century enslavement 
When we read in Proverbs, the debtor is is the slave to the lender. The debtor is slave to the lender, or the borrower is slave to the lender. And we, we, we proverbize it, we principalize it, but this was a real thing. To get money, lend it to you, you became a slave. A second way that this would happen in the context of it was that you would be so underwater with your debts that the individual who gave you the money would say, you're going to work it off. So there was no bankruptcy uh, court. You would just be put into indentured slavery. By the way, in our Constitution, there is uh, notes for this that you can't do this. You cannot put people into indentured servitude or slavery because of it. The only thing that can put you into slavery, according to our Constitution, is prison. You break the law and you can be put into prison. That's the only slavery that you can have. Number two, the second thing that you can do is you can become a slave out of your own choice because it's a better way of living. So you are sitting there. So Tim and Amanda are in Ephesus. We got our three boys and we're, we're catering. Okay. We're the five B's catering of Ephesus. Okay. And it ain't working. We've tried, and every time we try to get it working, it's not, and, and things aren't working well. And we just don't like it. People come and steal from us, and and uh, and business isn't as good as we want it to be. And so what we do is we keep looking at the guy up the hill, and we see the guy up the hill, and he's in a different business. Maybe he's a farmer or something. And, and Amanda keeps saying, you know what, Tim, maybe it'd be easier for us if we just became a part of his clan. If, if maybe you just became one of his workers and, and we just were enveloped into that clan. We became one of his people. We're not his family. We didn't marry into it. But I would then go with my little clan and I would say, hey, we want to become your slaves for a period of time or maybe for a lifetime because it is better for our protection and for our provision for us to be with you than for us to be on our own. Now you're like, why would you do that? As Americans, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We make it on our own, right? As Christians, this is exactly what we do. As Christians, here we are, working on our own. We come to the conclusion as non-Christians that we ain't making it on our own. We see King Jesus, and we say to King Jesus, instead of being a king of my own kingdom on my own, it would be better to be a slave in your kingdom. So I humbly come to you, King Jesus. Can I be a slave in your kingdom because to be a slave in your kingdom is to be better than being a king in my own kingdom. That's the second way you could do it. Number three, third way you could do it is a grotesque way. And that is children were often discarded in the Roman Empire because they weren't wanted. Some because they had some level of handicap. Most of them because they were girls were thrown off onto the garbage dumps. So it wasn't uncommon for infant children to be dumped by the wayside. 
it wasn't uncommon for landlords and masters to go take these children into their households, not as adopted children, which was the practice of the New Testament church, to adopt them into their family as God adopts us into his family as children. But they would be brought in, not as children, something less, we don't have a word for it, as slaves to work, but they would be given provision, they would be given protection, they would be given the basic needs of what they have. They could marry, they could be then given their freedom, as we read about by one of the historians. And so they were given a chance at life, they were given opportunity where they wouldn't have been given opportunity. So three ways. Now, as you look at those three things, you sit there and say, there is some justice to that. Now... Within that system, the important thing is the relationship between the master and the slave, the servant. The person in authority and the person under authority is vital in that relationship. And so now we have in the church these two people. Now notice what Paul says. Paul puts both of these people on the same level. He does so, first of all, by telling both of them they both serve Christ. Second, he tells both of them that God does not treat them with partiality. Third, that both of them, notice, will receive reward. And finally, that both of them will be in heaven. You see that? So Paul has leveled the playing field for the slave and master that the Christian needs to recognize whatever is happening here on earth, really, you need to understand from a biblical, spiritual standpoint, we're equals. We're equals. Because Jesus Christ has made us equal. They're no longer, as the book of Colossians says, our slave or free. And so here now we get to this. So now we're, now we fast forward back to the 21st century and it's like, okay, so what do we do with this? So we don't have slaves and we don't have masters here in America. So what do we do? So now we have to interpret other people's mail and say, can we apply this in any way? Well, the closest thing that we can do is to take out words of the Bible and put words of our own into it. And we gotta be careful because we do that with other passages, we get trouble. So if we're going to do that, we have to do a test and have to ask, if I put a word in the Bible that is closer to what I'm living and I put it in there, does it make sense? So let's do that test. Employees, obey your earthly employers with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is an employee or an employer. Employers, do the same to your employees and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both the ma their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality in them. So now the question is, we've imported our 21st century American words in here. Does it work? The answer is, yeah, it works. Now we need to understand, we've changed it a little bit, 
but it works. And so these last two points, and I'll move through them quickly, we have some application. Employees. Let's look at employees now. Wow, you're like, man, that was the longest first point ever. Okay? Employees, what's your job? Remember to do your job with diligence. So, right away, if we change that word slave to employees, what's your word? Obey. Obey your earthly employer. Let me ask this question. Write down on your sheet of paper. Who are you accountable to at work? Write that person's name down. I want you to take a moment, write that person's name down. If you're a student, write down a teacher's name because that's who you're accountable to. And then notice what your verb is. Obey. It's the same word that is used for children. And we learned last week, if you weren't here, what does it mean to obey? To listen and to do. Listen and do. And so we don't need to beat a dead horse. Let's just understand this very quickly. How well do you listen at work? How well do you do what you're told at work? This is elementary. Your boss is talking to you. Are you listening? Or are you thinking, I'm smarter than them? I'm better at my job than them? I should be in their place and not them? I could do it way better than them? Yada, yada, yada. Are those the voices that are going on in your head? When they tell you to do something, are you delayed in your response? Are you grumbling in your response? Are you wanting to do everything else? Are you doing it when they're watching and then not doing it when they're not? This is the problem. The Christian should be listening and doing and notice to the best of their ability. And here's why. Because their boss is just middle management. Whom they're really working for is Christ. That's who's at the top of your org chart. Now, notice a couple other things. It's to be done with sincerity. That is with integrity, wholeheartedness, without hypocrisy or ulterior motives. Notice you're to do this. Notice there's no talk of pay or benefits. You're to do this because of the role that the person plays. Notice it has to be done with fear and trembling. Are you to fear and tremble in front of the person? No, it's the position. Christian, understand this. The person you work for is there because God's put them there. She's there because God's put her there. The, the problem you have is not with your boss. The problem you have is with the sovereignty of God. And so do that with fear and trembling. God has put that person there and is being upheld by God there. And so your job is not to try to evict that person. Your job is to execute what that person is saying. Again, barring that they're asking you to do something sinful. is to be done with sincerity and wholeheartedness. And notice, to be done so that you can render a service. Verse 7. Okay, this is elementary. I, you know, I, I'm trying to draw out things that would be helpful for this. Rendering a service that you're doing your job. If, if, if you were to bring the people around you, your boss and the people that work around you, would they say of you, you're a good employee? You're a good employee. Or would they say, you know what, when they're gone, things just seem to work a whole lot smoother. It seems to be a whole lot brighter and sunnier in this place when they're not here. 
Evaluate. Ask yourself, am I a good employee? And maybe instead of reading your own press and thinking that you're as great as you are, maybe a question you could ask is the next time that you have opportunity with your employer, say, hey, is there anything I can do to do this job better? Anything I can do to your fellow employees? Is there anything I can do to make your life a little easier? Man, why would we do this? Because we're going to get paid more? No. Because we're going to get employee of the month? No. Because we serve Christ. Because Christ is our boss. Ken Hughes says this, and we'll move on to our third point. Genesis 1 logs God's commitment to excellence when he says God saw all that he made and he said it was very good. Therefore, Christians should always do good work. Christians ought to be the best workers wherever they are. They ought to have the best attitude, the best integrity, and be the best in dependability. You know if you're not doing this. I don't need to give you a whole list of things. I don't, right? We know what good work is. Let's do it. Let's get to work. Employers, reflect God by leading with a godly purpose. Verse 9, Paul finishes the passage and notice, he says, masters do the same thing to them. So everything I just said applies to you, uh, to you, uh, employers. But then he says, stop threatening. And it's kind of like dads. You've got a lot of authority, employers. You've got a lot of weight to use to push around. So stop exerting it and stop pushing people around with it. So a couple of things I would say practically. Very early on in my management at the catering company, I was doing an event where I had a large group of people that were working for me. And my father was there observing And he noticed I did a lot of pointing, a lot of yelling, and a lot of declaring I'm the boss. And I was in my early 20s when this happened, and my dad pulled me aside and said, Hey, Tim, you know, the event went great and all that. Can I just give you a piece of advice? And what he shared with me, I've never forgotten. He says, Tim, I've come to realize that the people who have to tell others that they're the boss usually means they're not the boss. And so employers, if you're constantly having to declare your position, if you have to show everybody the org chart, if you have to point at the nameplate, you're not leading. And people aren't following. And if you have to dictate, if you have to threaten, if words like, if you don't do this, I'm going to dock this. If you don't do this, I'm going to take this away. And threats, they don't work. And what... Paul says here is that we are as employers to be like Jesus. We're like, well, I don't know. When did Jesus run a company? Well, here's what I know. Jesus was the master of all masters. And never did I ever see him dictate. Never did I see him threaten. What I saw him do is invite. He invited. He invited people. Does that mean that we can't never do hard things? Yeah, as bosses, we may have to do hard things. But Jesus always invited people in. He invited people in. He cared for people. He understood backstories of people. He tried to understand what was going on with people. He invited people and their lives in. And it wasn't about what people did for him. It was about people. 
And so employers, be careful that profits don't drive you, but people do. Let people be more important than profits. Let them be the program. Let your employees be more important than the bottom line. Because at the end of the day, without employees, you won't have a bottom line. And so Jesus calls us and shows us to to invite them. Stop threatening and notice what he says at the end of this. That both the employee and the employer both have a master. His name is Jesus. And so listen, friends, Jesus is our CEO. And if Jesus is our CEO, then it should be a joy to go to work. It should be a joy to be at work. It should be a joy to do work because at the end of the day, we know our CEO knows what we're doing, knows how we're serving, knows when we're giving it our all, and he says at the end of the day, we will receive back whatever good we have done, whether we are an employee or an employer. And friends, that should be good enough for us. Amen?